Hey there, thanks for tuning in this week. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, and I'm Fit Pregnancies Ask the Labor Nurse. I also answer reader questions over on The Bump and right here on this podcast. I've been getting a lot of emails lately, and I want to answer a few of them, um, or a couple of them, this week. Every darn week, I get some variation of this email. I'm pregnant with my first baby and trying to prepare myself for labor. I want to get through labor without medication or an epidural, but everyone tells me I'm crazy. Is labor really that painful? What should I do to get through it if I don't want an epidural? I also got an email this week from a woman who had her first baby in England. She says, I moved here a few months ago for my partner's job, and I'm expecting our second baby this summer. I just found out that in your hospitals, you don't offer gas and air during labor and delivery, and I'm starting to get nervous. I used gas and air with my first labor, and it was glorious. I never felt like I needed anything else, and my labor went really well. The doctor I'm seeing for this pregnancy said all her patients get epidurals. I really don't think I want one. How am I going to get through labor this time? So to answer these two emails, I want to read a bit from the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. This section is called, How Bad is Labor Anyway? And it's tucked into chapter 10, which is called Labor Pains. I know there are women who consider labor a pleasurable, powerful experience. Some even describe it as orgasmic. Some women say contractions aren't painful at all, but merely intense. I've actually witnessed labors like these a time or two. I've also been at the bedside for thousands and thousands of other labors, ones not described as pleasurable, merely intense, or the least bit orgasmic. They're described with less favorable words, ranging from bad to an effing nightmare. I'm sorry, I wish I could say it ain't so, but for the vast majority of women, labor is pretty darn painful, more painful than anything else. Using a pain scale from 1 to 10, 1 being virtually no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable, most women describe contractions during active labor as being an 11. The pain doesn't just live in the uterus, but often extends to the hips, back, thighs, perineum, and intestines, and it is often accompanied by nausea and vomiting. It's a total body experience. When labor is really active, there's a minute or so of pain followed by a minute of rest, and this cycle goes on for hours, sometimes even days. It's messy, sweaty, bloody business, and I wouldn't be doing you any favors if I were to sugarcoat it and say it's not that hard. It's hard for women in the United States, hard for women in Africa, hard for women in Peru, hard for women all over the world. There, we've gotten the god-awful truth out of the way. Now, let's talk about how to dial down the bad. Most of the bad revolves around pain. Here in the United States, women have three basic ways of managing pain. One, go natural, which means no narcotics or epidural. Hot baths, showers, and compresses deep relaxation techniques, and massage help a lot. Two, get some pain medication through an IV. This is a popular choice during labor for women who need some relief but don't want to have an epidural. Most women say these drugs take the edge off and make pain more bearable, but the effect doesn't generally last for more than an hour or two. Three, get an epidural. 
About 65% of American women receive epidurals during labor, which consists of an injection of numbing medication into the space surrounding the spinal column. It takes the pain away completely in most cases, but also leaves women unable to walk or move around on their own until the epidural is discontinued and has worn off. It's the most popular method of pain relief here in America. Epidural rates are higher at some hospitals than others based on varying patient populations, availability of anesthetists, and patient-physician preferences. In the United Kingdom, only about 30% of women use epidurals. In Canada, the rate is about 50%. What do these countries have that American women don't? Nitrous oxide, aka gas and air, or laughing gas. Nitrous oxide dials contraction pain down considerably without the shot in the back or complete numbness. They also have midwifery-based care and greater access to birthing tubs, both of which are associated with less use of pain medications. Nitrous oxide was popular in the United States prior to the 1960s when epidurals became available. This odorless, colorless, patient-administered gas was safe, widely used, and effective through all stages of labor. When epidurals came on the scene, though, and profits from epidural use went up, gas went out the window. Now, very few hospitals make nitrous oxide available, but since about 2007, it has been making a comeback. Why? Because it provides an excellent way to dial down the bad and gives women a middle path between an all-natural birth and an epidural. If you live in a major city, ask your midwife or doctor if your hospital has nitrous oxide. It's not available everywhere yet, but its use at major hospitals is increasing. So I'll leave it there, ask you guys to read um, a lot more about pain management techniques in the book. Um, But the good news is that more and more hospitals are making nitrous oxide available. And today, I want to talk to a midwife who works at the first hospital in Portland, Oregon to offer nitrous oxide as an option in their labor and delivery unit. Wendy Berger has been a certified nurse midwife since 1990. She received an Master's of Science in Nursing and an MPH from Columbia University and first worked at a freestanding birth center in Princeton, New Jersey. Later, she joined the staff at Providence Maternal Care Clinic in Portland, Oregon. She was also a clinical instructor for the School of Nursing at Oregon Health and Sciences University from 93 to 2008. And in that role, she supervised student nurse midwives during their clinical rotations. She joined the midwifery practice at Legacy Emanuel Hospital in February of 2015 and became its program director in September. Legacy Emanuel Hospital is a bit of a maverick in terms of birth practices. They have birthing pools in their some of their labor suites. Um, they're actively working to make the transition from home to hospital as smooth as possible uh, when home birth patients need to transfer during labor to a hospital. They're doing things right, and I'm really glad to get Wendy on the phone. Let's give her a call. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Cheney. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. You know, I started doing some research and writing articles about nitrous oxide, I want to say five or six years ago, and it's just been you know, percolating slowly but surely to the foreground. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, because your hospital is one. Are you guys the only one in the city that's using nitrous oxide? We um, we are the well. OHSU is supposed to go live with nitrous uh, this month, so uh-huh. I'm not sure whether they already have um, or not. But we started with nitrous. Our program started at the end of November. Um, so we have it here at Emanuel, and uh, Good Sam is going to go live with nitrous, uh, I believe, this month. So uh, it's uh, slowly spreading through the city. I, I kind of love that about Emanuel, that you're always a little ahead of the curve. I love that. I think so. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I met a long time ago, 20, 20 years ago maybe, 20-something? Yeah, I think, yeah, in uh, 1993. Okay. Yeah. I Yeah, we had both just moved here to Portland. And we were both working at the same hospital in labor and delivery. Yep. And, you know, over the 20 something years that I've been working in the birth community or in labor and delivery, we've seen a lot of trends come and go a lot of, you know, practice changes, a lot of things have really changed in those years, but not so much with pain management. You know, there's basically been two options. There's the epidural route, or there's the natural route, and not a whole lot in between. So when you're talking to your patients about it, how do you guide that conversation? What do you talk to them about their options and their goals? Um, well, I uh, I start by asking um, women and their partners what their goals are, mm-hmm. uh, because women approach labor and birth uh, very differently, and uh, some women know that their goal is to uh, have an epidural, and um, that that's how they're going to feel successful um, with their birth. And uh, for some women, their goal is to have an unmedicated birth. And I um, personally, I talk about medicated versus unmedicated birth as mm-hmm. opposed to natural childbirth, because the flip side of that then I think would be considered unnatural. And I um, I just don't like that terminology. So um, I, uh, I try to educate women about what all of their choices are in terms of um, pain management options that are use less intervention and then moving uh, along the spectrum to uh, epidurals, which is the most intervention, and what the uh, pros and cons are of each, um, and then try to help them to um, think about what they might want to use and also to be open to the possibility that what they think they might want during pregnancy may be different from what they end up wanting uh, during their labor and birth so that they can feel comfortable with whatever outcome they end up having. Um, I'm glad that you have that conversation about, you know, sort of changing changing gears while they're still in the prenatal stage because you and I both know that so many women come into labor and delivery with one set idea about how things are going to go down and how things are going to happen for them. And then when things change and it doesn't go exactly the way they anticipated, a lot of women kind of feel like, well, that means something's wrong. And exactly. and it's not. Labor's like that. That's exactly right. And I think that if you can try to start the conversation and plant the idea that um, that you really, in many ways, have no control over how your labor and birth will go. And if you can just roll with it, um, then you can leave your birth experience as long as you have felt well supported. Hopefully, you leave your birth experience feeling successful and ready to parent. And um, I try to remind couples that um, that when they got pregnant, that their 
ultimate goal was probably to parent um, a healthy child, and that that is my goal for them also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about nitrous oxide, um, and I want to preview that a little bit with, um, you know, talking about the fact that. We used to have nitrous oxide. That was a pain management of choice up until the 1960s here in the United States and in England and Europe and Canada and, you know, all over the world of developed countries. And then in the 60s, it pretty abruptly went away. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what it is and how it works first. Okay. Um, So nitrous oxide, uh, the way it's uh, people... People know of it um, as laughing gas, which has been used in dental offices for for many, many decades. Um, The way it is used um, for women in labor is a much lower concentration of nitrous oxide. It's a 50-50 mix of um, nitrous and oxygen. Um, And it is used with a mask, which women hold over their nose and their mouth. They control um, when they use it. They control how much of the gas they absorb um, based on how deeply they breathe in and how often they breathe in. Um, And it's absorbed in the respiratory, uh, so through the respiratory system, and it's also exhaled that way. Um, It takes effect pretty quickly, usually within about 30 seconds of um, beginning to breathe in. It will reach its peak uh, serum level. And then once um, you uh, take the mask away, it clears the, the body very, very quickly as well. Um, and what it does is it causes a sense of relaxation um, and, uh, for many women. And it, uh, yeah, they still feel their contractions, but it, they're not um, perceived as quite as painfully. It's like they still know they're having the contractions, but they don't quite care as much. Does it actually make the pain less, or is it that they don't care about it as much? I think it's just that they don't care about it as much. Hmm. Yeah. I, lo- I like that. I mean, just theoretically, I kind of like that idea. You know, because we do know that the more that you focus on your pain, the more you're going to feel it. That's right. Yeah. So it just kind of deflects the focus to something else. That's right. Cool. I love it. Yeah. So why do you think that the U.S. eliminated it. I have my own theory, and um, some of the stuff that I've researched uh, makes a pretty strong link with the fact that um, epidurals were becoming much um, easier to facilitate and that um, anesthetists and anesthesiologists didn't want to invest their skills into a hospital unless they were guaranteed to be getting some business. Well, certainly in the 1970s, epidurals became much more popular. And today, I mean, in, in, in some parts of the country, you know, 80 or 85% of women who uh, give birth are, are using epidurals as their uh, as a choice for pain management. Um, and it was also, um, it, uh, it wasn't until 2011, actually, that the FDA approved new equipment um, for delivery rooms that allowed um, hospitals to start offering nitrous oxide again um, in a much more readily available manner. It's um, been used at uh, University of California at San Francisco Hospital for over 30 years. So, yeah. um, they never really stopped using nitrous, although I think they were really alone in that for, for a long, long time. Um, so I would agree with you that it was really the rise in epidurals that decreased the use of, of nitrous as, as an option for women. And yet in, you know, countries all over the world, they've been using it all along. 
And so we've seen our epidural rates um, skyrocket, whereas other countries have been pretty stable. And, you know, it's not to say that in countries like England or Finland or Norway, women aren't getting epidurals. They certainly are. But just, you know, you, you mentioned like 80, 85% in some hospitals. I, th- I think that's about right. I think, you know, that's pretty indicative of the options we have. Well, I think that there are a couple of factors that, that play into that. And um, in the countries that where nitrous has been available um, uh, all along, those countries also have a much higher use of midwives for yep. women in labor. Yep. And so those women are, are being offered um, really a different labor and birth experience than most women in this country. And, and, and a different prenatal experience. And a different prenatal experience. And yeah. so perhaps different expectations of what their labor and birth will be like. I think that they're probably better prepared. And I also think that those women um, are more likely to have continuous labor support um, during their, their labors and births. And, and more than anything, that is probably what helps women get through um, birth in an unmedicated fashion is having continuous labor support. Yeah. How, have you done a lot of a lot of deliveries, a lot of labors and births with patients using nitrous? Um, well, we have as a practice um, here at Emanuel. Quite a number of our patients have taken advantage of um, the availability of nitrous. Mm-hmm. And I would say that like anything, um, many of the women really, really like it. They find it very, very helpful and it um, they use it either for, as their only um, pain management option or perhaps they use it for a while and it gets them closer to a place where they feel like now they want an epidural but they're farther along in their labor process. Mm-hmm. And then there are some women who, who try it and find that it doesn't work as well for them um, or they don't like some of the side effects that can occur um, and, then, and then don't stick with it. So what kind of side effects can occur? What, it, what are they so, talking about? Uh, the most common ones are nausea. Mm-hmm. Um, some women will feel a little bit dizzy or a little bit drowsy with it mm-hmm. um, because they have to hold the mask up to their nose and mouth completely. I think some women at least initially feel a little bit claustrophobic with it. Ah. Um, but but most of those things resolve if, if a woman is really motivated to to give it a shot. And, and most women, if they stick with it, will, will find that those things go away. Yeah, yeah. It's different, though, than like, you know, some narcotic in the IV, right? It is different, exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't really affect the fetus in the same way, um, and um, it has a, it's much shorter acting, So, and it's all completely patient-controlled. Women who get IV medication, um, you know, until that medication wears off, they're under its influence. And with nitrous, as soon as they take the mask away, you know, they're back to where they were. And they can start using it as early as they want and continue using it through delivery. Whereas with, yeah, whereas with, you know, with IV narcotics, you don't want to use it too early because it's only really going to work well the first, you know, one or two doses you get. You don't want to use it too late because then the baby could have it in his or her bloodstream and that can affect respiration. So you got to time that correctly. That's right. And that is really the, the most beautiful part of nitrous is that it can be used very, very early on in the process. It can be used toward the very end uh, during that transition phase, which can be very challenging for women. 
Um, it can be used during pushing and actually um, even for a woman who has had a completely unmedicated labor and birth, if she has any sort of laceration and needs any kind of repair, you can use it during that period of time as well to help her relax during any kind of um, suturing that might need to occur. Yeah. So can you draw any correlations between pain management choices that women make and birth outcomes? Um, And I'm talking anecdotally here, not, you know, data-driven information. Uh, I would say anecdotally, I really don't see a difference. I know that there is, that many women are concerned about um, the use of epidurals in particular and how that might increase the risk of cesarean section. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really find that in my practice. I think that if you have chosen a practitioner who is patient with you um, and is understands that um, when women have epidurals that their labors might take longer and the pushing stages might take longer, mm-hmm. um, that, that even having an epidural is not going to increase uh, the chances of having an operative delivery of any sort. So um, I, I really don't think it... Um, that any of them make a difference in birth outcomes um, so much as uh, how women feel about their birth experience. And it also has more to do with the provider that you select than it does, you know, the interventions that are selected. I mean, because you and I both know that midwives do tend to be a lot more patient and um, willing to let, you know, normal physiologic processes of labor and birth come forth on their own path, whereas many obstetricians, certainly not all, um, but many, they're trained to intervene. So intervene they will. I, I, I completely agree with that statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you have a patient who comes into labor with a very specific birth plan, and, you know, as we talked about earlier, it doesn't go the way she thought, how do you help her adjust? What do you do in the moment when, you know, for, you know, you think of the patient who is absolutely certain that under no circumstances will she do anything other than have an unmedicated birth. And, you know, she's practiced and trained and studied and she's prepared herself as much as she can. And yet she comes in and she's, you know, it's a different experience than she anticipated. What do you do? How do you talk to your patient? Well, you know, uh, unless it's a true emergency, either for the mother or the baby, and those are really very rare, Mm -hmm. um, there is always time. There is always time to explain to to women and their families, you know, how things are going, my assessment of of their labor situation, um, and what their options are for moving forward. Mm -hmm. And they're usually several choices that women can make at any given time. Um, And so I feel like my job is to provide information and recommendations and then help families move forward at their own pace. Mm -hmm. And and in most cases, when families are given that opportunity to make their own choices, even though they may be different from the choices that they had hoped to have, um, they eventually reach um, reach the place where they need to be and feel okay about it. I think that the hardest thing is when 
is when women feel like they're being pressured to to go down a road that they don't want to go down. Mm-hmm. And so you can, I, I just try to always explain my rationale for things and why I think they might benefit from a particular intervention that perhaps was not on their birth plan and um, and then take the time to allow them to reach that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always acknowledge that this is not what they had expected or what they had hoped for. Um, and I always try to remind women and their families about what the long-term goal is, which, you know, as I said earlier, the goal is a healthy mom and a healthy baby. Right. Uh, and um, we know, have, I think we have a tendency. We tend- will never ever compromise that goal. That will always be the goal. Yeah. I think that we have a tendency in our culture to place more um, value on an unmedicated birth than a medicated one. I mean, almost as if women feel that they need to apologize for it. And I think that that's a a disservice that, you know, I'm not certain where that disservice is driven or who's driving it entirely. It's just the way we talk about it. Oh, did you have a natural birth? Or did you have an epidural? And you can even just tell by the way somebody uses their voice that, epidural was the lesser choice, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And, I, and then I think women feel a lot of shame in, um, in a choice that they make that involves any sort of pain management option other than something that we would consider natural. Right. And I would extend that conversation uh, about breastfeeding, and I know that that's not what today is about, but I would also say that I think that some women who, um, for whatever reasons, are unable to or choose not to breastfeed, that they feel a lot of shame about that. And I would love to see the conversation move more towards supporting families in whatever choices they make. Well, let's you and I move that conversation forward. Let's do another podcast and talk about that. <laughs> I did a I did a podcast. Um, I think it was in November or maybe it was December with Jessica Shortall, who um, did a TED talk recently and has a book that she just published called Work, Pump, Repeat. And it's a survival guide for women who are returning to work um, while breastfeeding. And it's it's really a treatise about why we need to have paid family leave in America um, based on all kinds of factors, including, you know, our nation's economy and physical and mental health. But in this, she talks a lot about respect for women who have decided not to um, breastfeed or who breastfeed for a short time. And then they feel like they have failed if they haven't met the goal that they met. And her point is that you haven't failed. The system has failed you. Your choice is valid. What else were you going to do? Mm-hmm. So that's a conversation we should have going forward. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So what else do you want listeners to know about nitrous oxide, pain management? What else do you want them to know about it? Well, I, I think what I want uh, want listeners to know is that um, if where they're planning on delivering does not currently have nitrous, they can advocate that that those um, hospitals or birth centers uh, move toward uh, making it a part of uh, one of their options. Um, and that, so, how uh, how could they do that by simply going to their provider and saying, "I want you to look into this," or how would they advocate? 
Yeah, well, that would be how it would start. You, they would talk to their providers and ask whether where they deliver offers nitrous, and if the answer is no, ask whether that the hospital system is is looking into purchasing the the um, delivery systems for it. Um, I I think that consumers are always going to be what moves uh, many things, including healthcare and in, in, uh, new directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just knowing that it uh, that it may be the perfect choice for a woman, or it, it may just be one of several choices that she makes to manage the pain of labor. Um, and, um, and then I hope that uh, women uh, feel that they can uh, advocate for themselves and have the support of their providers and um, make the choices that are ultimately going to be best for them, whatever those are. Yeah. That's a pretty good wrap-up there. But I want to ask you one question that I, I ask everybody um, on my show if they are a mom, and that is, where are you in your life as a mom? Where am I in my life as a mom? Um, well, I have two children. Um, I have my, my oldest um, is a sophomore in college, and my youngest is a senior in high school getting ready to go to college. So I feel like my life as a mom is um, about to change direction, and I'll still be um, responsible for them, but in a very different way from the last 21 years. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be a parent, I think, watching your children grow up and leave home, and, um, you know, that was my goal for them, to to raise them to be able to leave me. So it's exciting to, to watch that happen. Yeah, yeah. That's... That's a pretty good answer. Well, Wendy, I think that we have talked a lot today, and um, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you later on another podcast about breastfeeding, and I bet so much more. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye, Wendy. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Today's guest was Wendy Berger, a certified nurse midwife working at Legacy Emanuel Hospital in Portland, Oregon. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studio in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere books are sold. You can learn more about me at my website, JeanFaulkner.com, and you can email me at Jean at JeanFaulkner.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating on iTunes and please subscribe, share, and help keep the conversation going. Oh,